lurking in your business right now, I guarantee there is at least one perverse incentive. You have unwittingly set up a performance measure that is nuts. <laughs> it's counterproductive and it is making people do really weird things in order to get by. And in some cases, as I've explained in a past podcast, it causes people to try and do an end run around you and cheat. And you can't blame them because you set it up. So are your performance processes as crazy as this example that I'm going to give? There is a book called Cambodia, a book for people who find television too slow, by a good Vancouverite named uh, Brian Fawcett. And I'm from Vancouver, so I understand where he's coming from. He wrote this book in the 80s, and the Los Angeles Times said he's purely an intellectual guerrilla who has declared war on what he calls the global village. And he really understands this perverse incentive stuff, let me tell you. The, the structure of the book, if you ever pick it up, it's in an, an odd manner. The first third, the top two-thirds of the page are his ongoing short stories, vignettes, little doodles and that. They're kind of neat. One of them's about something called Universal Chicken, and it's good to remember that Chicken McNuggets had just invented, been invented at that time. And so suddenly the sterilization of originality was going on across North America, right? You could go from Denver to uh, Texas, right, uh, to Dallas, and get the same chicken. Well, what about local shops with originality, you know, the apple with a dent in it, right? Those things are, are leaving from this world. We're not used to them. We don't like them anymore. And the bottom third of the page is this very interesting essay on the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and crowd control and Vietnam and and uh, this example that I'm about to share about the Belgian Congo. So Fawcett begins talking about this topic by bringing in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which most of us know through the Hollywood film uh, Apocalypse Now, where the story was ripped out of darkest Africa and, and put into darkest Vietnam <laughs> and updated for, uh, for a modern generation. But it's important to remember that Joseph Conrad, the author, had gone there, had traveled there and seen these crazy things that had practically destroyed his sanity and certainly his faith in God and human nature. And, and Brian explains in there, as a, as a college student, Heart of Darkness had come up on uh, his, his class list, and he never read it. He wrote a paper, I think, on it, never read it, and was mad at the instructor, who had this sort of view that, oh, yeah, look at this, this is real, this is an example, it's not just psychological, uh, it, it's, it's how awful humans are to each other and God doesn't care about you as an individual. And Brian being from Vancouver, and again, I'm from there originally, so I get this. It took me a, a few years of living outside of Vancouver to start seeing this. Uh, it went, well, everybody's enlightened, aren't they, in this sort of Rousseau manner? Aren't we all wanting to be good to each other and nice to our fellow human beings and that? And so I'm going to begin a fairly long quote here. Uh, to get us into this. Uh, I think it's, it's very interesting. I was 30 before I finally came to read Conrad, and even then it was the result of a fortunate accident. I blundered into a little book written by Mark Twain in 1905 entitled King Leopold's Soliloquy. The subject was the Belgian Congo, and within a few pages I recognized that I'd seriously misjudged Joseph Conrad. The heart of darkness he'd written about had a physical location, 
and was a complex of material events and consequences. It was secret, but it wasn't psychological. From Twain's pamphlet, I learned that the Congo River Basin had been the site of perhaps the most extensive series of massacres in human history. And we'll stop the quote there. He mentions that the Belgian Congo was personally controlled, supervised by the King of Belgium, that Leopold II. They're producing rubber and they're extracting profits that more or less go directly into the bank accounts of the Belgian king. I'll continue the quote here. The Congo of the 1890s, this is not that long ago, was densely populated, but culturally diffuse and technologically extremely primitive. There was a plethora of tribal groups, all living in small, territorially organized enclaves, all hostile and isolated from one another, and all operating close to the margin of subsistence. The rubber was collected in the following manner. The administration of the Free State, backed by an armed constabulary conscripted largely from one of the more aggressive tribal groups, would appear in a village and set and collect taxes to spread, as they put it, the progressive and uplifting ethic of hard work. The village being subjected to this enlightened form of taxation was ordered during the taxation period to produce a quota of raw rubber and to support the supervisory apparatus of the Free State. These quotas could not be met without curtailing or abandoning the agricultural and food-gathering practices that enabled the villagers to subsist. What little food was produced first went to the colonial supervisory apparatus, the constabulary. Within weeks, a rapid breakdown of tribal structure and morale occurred. Within months, the result was widespread malnutrition and or starvation. The weak or ill unable to secure the required rubber quotas, were killed or chased into the jungle to die. The corpses of the dead villagers were piled in the village as disciplinary encouragement for those that continued to survive. When the entire village had been exterminated, the apparatus simply packed up and moved on to the next terrified village, and the process was repeated. I'm going to skip a bit here as well to get to where we're going, which is the perverse incentive. Listen to this. The Belgian administration of the Congo Free State developed a number of idiosyncratic administrative practices that allow the colossal brutality and injustice of those years to be approached, if not comprehended. Perhaps the most bizarre practice was the procedure developed to account for the distribution and use of rifle cartridges by the constabulary. Rifle cartridges were an expense the colonial administration had to deduct from profits, and therefore became an item to be carefully controlled. The constabulary, in the interests of efficient cartridge husbandry, was made to account for bullets expended, not with the spent cartridge hulls, but with severed human right hands. By itself, this reveals that the primary role of the constabulary was not to control uncooperative tribesmen or to encourage production, but to exterminate human beings. But saying so flatly is like the rest of the possible explanations of bureaucratic logic abstraction that fails to tell the story. It has to be told in greater detail, as in the following. Should a board patrol wander into the jungle to hunt or to indulge in some target practice, the accounting procedure compelled them to enter the nearest village and to collect their quota of human hands, usually from the less economically useful elderly or from women and children. That is a perverse incentive. And if you think that those 
died out. Well, that's those silly people in the 1890s. Let me give you a few other examples throughout the era in between, okay? There was a glass plant in the Soviet era that's recorded for making first too thick glass and then too thin glass because of these stupid performance incentives. Let's look at the system first used by private companies transporting prisoners to Australia. How were they rewarded? They were paid according to the number of convicts loaded in at the time of departure, not those who arrived at the end. So what did that lead to? A lot of unnecessary deaths and overcrowding. Oh, and IBM. There was this time that they wanted to produce some more robust code. So they said to the programmers, we will reward you by the line that you code. And what did that lead to? Bloated programs. It makes you think of Charles Dickens. Noted Inuit hater Charles Dickens. That Charles Dickens writing for serial stories, right? Magazines. How many ways can I write this thing and how can I make it longer? Because I get paid by the word. Government organizations like the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs are not exempt from these kinds of things. Forbes had an article in the middle of 2014 when the Secretary of Veterans Affairs resigned. And this is a quote from the article right here. The administration is trying to form an explanation for how the culture devolved to where unethical behavior among VA leadership was tolerated. The decision to eliminate performance bonuses for VA leadership certainly suggests that the bonuses may have contributed to these unethical behaviors. In at least one hospital, employee bonuses were linked to patient wait times, and the performance pay system rewarded doctors for minimizing the number of patient follow-up visits. This is going on all over the place all the time. There are eight points here in this article that I'm going to reiterate because I think they're a good idea to help you get away from designing an incentive program that rewards bad behavior by accident. First is design incentives that drive both individual and organizational success. Makes sense, right? Two. Focus on both short-term and long-term incentives. Sounds normal, right? Yet, out there in the real world, what do you see most of the time? CEOs and vice presidents of business development concentrating on appeasing their shareholders with short-term, next-quarter revenue goals. That's it. Three, provide a variety of incentives, not just sales targets. There may be other things that you can incentivize customer service. Fourth is provide structured incentives rather than discretionary ones. The king should not be able to wave his hand <laughs> and dispense justice, right? It should be something that is clear. And there's an interesting quote in this article here in this area. Discretionary goals almost always do more harm than good, no matter how fair you think they are. Someone will always question why certain individuals receive bonuses, which will put you on the defensive. That's interesting. Which leads right into the fifth point, make it transparent. Uh, my ex-co-founder at The Closing Engine was great at this stuff. Keeping the sales commission structure, performance pay structure completely transparent. A lot of people would want to hide that behind a screen. Six, make sure incentives are financially sustainable. The article mentions that small businesses especially seem to run into this problem, but it is something that everyone should be aware of. What happens if your company runs into a rough patch, right? Is the incentive program going to kill you? Seven, probably the most important, war game the possibilities. If it's good enough for nation states, it should be good enough for you and your business, right? Try it out. 
vet it with people inside and outside your organization. Play things out, see what happens. Does it put you into a bad financial position? Do these weird behaviors result? What happens? Can you get rid of some risk by doing that? And eighth, ensure that the incentive program reflects your organization's values. Well, I would add to that culture, principles, right? all stuff that works together. What is good in your organization? What kind of behavior do you want? What kind do you not want? All this stuff should be working together. So watch out for perverse incentives. If you missed the podcast in which I dug into an example from my own past of a factory being run with a perverse incentive that caused scammers to rig the production figures so that they would get a bigger payout, I'll link to that in the description and you can go listen to that. This is going on all over the place by well-meaning people who are rushed and simply don't have the time to think it through, right? But you got to make the time and involve more people in the decision making. Thanks for listening.